27. G'day everyone, great to see you all. Uh, get your, keep your Bibles open there at John chapter 7, uh, you'll find you need to follow along uh, with this one, it's quite a complicated story. Uh, but as we start, uh, I have a bit of a confession to make to you, a bit of a dark secret, uh, and it's this, one of my favourite actors is Hugh Grant. I know uh, that doesn't sit well with my tough guy, we've got a picture of him, there he is. No, it doesn't sit well with my tough guy, sort of rugged intellectual image you all have of me. Uh, uh, I know it's not cool, I don't like his private life, uh, but uh, it's this funny thing, please don't tell Victoria this, um, uh, when we sit down and say, let's, let's watch a movie, I put on a show like, oh, let's watch Terminator or, you know, something like that. But actually, I quite like those sort of English romantic comedy sort of things. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, I went and saw him in Paddington 2 with the kids a little while ago. And uh, he was in that, and I love that. I know, as I say, I know it doesn't fit with my image. I know I've fallen in your esteem, but uh, I've got it off my chest. I feel much better. Uh, but have you ever noticed how... We can get rid of the photo now. Uh, have you ever noticed how uh, every one of those movies is exactly the same? Have you ever noticed that? They all have exactly the same story. They are all built around the idea that you know what should happen. You're sort of in on the information. You know that he really loves her and she really loves him and they should get married. But, but the comedy and the story in it all is the fact that they keep taking false paths and they don't know the truth. Even Paddington, you know, you know he's a lovely little bear who doesn't deserve to be in jail, you, you know. But the, the comedy and the story is in them finding that out for themselves. Well, this passage today could be one of those comedies if it just wasn't so sad. Uh, because in it, Jesus makes this incredible offer to every person, the free gift of eternal life. Uh, and it's there, right in front of them, waiting to be accepted, but people refuse to see it. And people refuse to accept it. And in fact, what you see is them chasing all sorts of false paths, coming up with all sorts of silly reasons not to accept and believe in Jesus, rather than just accepting the wonderful gift that Jesus is offering them. So come with me, John chapter 7, we're looking from verse 25. But you've got to remember where we are in the story so far. Jesus has been doing His thing for a couple of years now. John's Gospel has been sharing with us like a, a, a two or three year period of Jesus' life. Uh, he's drawn the massive crowds, He's done that. Uh, but now the crowds are dwindling uh, and people are deserting Him. They loved His miracles, but they didn't like His teaching. We've seen that so far in the story. And well, as far as Jerusalem goes, well, He's been there before and the common people really liked Him, but all the religious people, the leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, they hated Jesus. And so, in fact, they have already decided to kill Him. So, to go to Jerusalem is basically to, to go to His death. Uh, and for a long while now, he's been back up in Galilee, away from Jerusalem. But now, there's one of the biggest Jewish festivals there is going on. So, it's the, called the Feast of the Tabernacles, or the, the Feast of the, of the Booths. And so, faithful Jews from all over the country have gone to Jerusalem. So, if you, if you were a faithful Jew, you would be in Jerusalem for this week-long festival. Uh, but if Jesus goes, he was a faithful Jew, but if Jesus goes, I mean, they're trying to kill him. What do you do? So we saw in the first half of chapter 7 last week, he goes, but he sort of sneaks in quietly. But then, halfway through the festival, he drops the quietly. 
So he just sort of says, I've had enough. He gets, goes to the temple, centre of everything. He stands up openly. He starts teaching. And from that point, point on, it is on for young and old. Uh, and we saw the start of that in the first half of the chapter last week. And what we see is, as he teaches, everyone is talking about him. Uh, and, and some people, on the one hand, want to kill him. Others are intrigued by him. But everyone is asking the question, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the Saviour and King sent from God? And so what we're going to see now in this second half of the chapter is we're going to look at the different people's reactions to Jesus and see what we can learn from those reactions. Uh, and then we're going to go see, go see Jesus' wonderful offer and see what that says to us. So the first reaction is the common people. And basically, they're interested. They're starting to wonder if Jesus could be the Messiah. So look at verse 25. It says, Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Isn't this the man they want to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know he is the Messiah? So these are the common people, not the educated leaders. They're meant to do what the, the sort of leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes tell them, but they're really confused because they know that they want to kill Jesus, but they're listening to Jesus and they're sort of saying, but he's making sense. So what's going on and why is it that our leaders, even though they hate him, can't refute what he says? Why can't they just sort of prove him to be wrong? What's going on? And so they actually think it's sort of like conspiracy theory. Maybe they know he's the Messiah and they're not telling us. But then they think, hang on, look at, look at verse 27, they think he can't be. They say, but we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he is from. Now, this isn't from the Old Testament, this is just something they had in their minds. It seems that some people thought the Messiah would just appear out of nowhere, sort of like Batman, you know, like, like here I am, you don't know who I am, you don't know where I've come from, but here I am the Saviour. It wasn't from the Bible, it's just an idea that had grown up. But later on in the passage, some people who know their Old Testaments better have a similar issue. So jump down in the passage to verse 41 uh, and you'll read there, it says, Others said, this is the Messiah... But some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Now, we don't get the tone in their voice as they're saying that. Uh, every people in the world have another people who they make fun of and say they're really dense. You know what I mean? Now, I am not going to name a place in Sydney, a place where you say, oh, they're from, because there is nothing more certain than one of you will be from there and I'll have offended you. But I, I've got a French friend and he used to talk about une Belge. That's the Belgians, and, and his view was Belgians really dense. Really, is there any Belgians here? Anyway, it's not my view; it's his view. If you are a Belgian, <laughs> now you can probably come up with a state of Australia that you think where people are like you know that sort of idea. But that's what people from Galilee were the country bumpkins. So, so one part of what they're saying is, and when they said we know where he's come from, they're saying he's. He's the son of a carpenter from a backwater. He's a country bumpkin. He can't be the Messiah. But more than that, look at verse 42. These people knew the Old Testament. They knew the prophets. And they say, doesn't the Scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David once lived? So they thought, well, the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. The, the prophet said so. Has to be descended from David. We know... Jesus is the son of Joseph from Galilee, from Nazareth. He can't be the one. Now, the silliness of it is, and we all know this, remember, we know the story already. The silliness of it is, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. 
And who was he descended from? David. You see, but in both cases, the issue was that Jesus was just too normal to be the Messiah. They knew he was just the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. He didn't fit with their grand and heroic pictures of what God's saviour should look like. You know, you still hear people dismiss Jesus with that argument today. I remember reading in the TV guide, of all things, uh, the, the Monty Python movie, The Life of Brian, was on TV. You know the movie? You know, you've seen The Life of Brian, you, you know, and it's a takeoff of Jesus' life. And the reviewer, I, re- I wrote it down because this is what he said. He said, but of course, this movie in the end shows us how foolish it really is to think that a carpenter from Nazareth might be the way to know God. I remember reading that and thinking, well, firstly, stick to TV reviewing and and stick out of theology because you've got no idea. But secondly, I thought, isn't it sad? The very thing that most shows the depth of God's love for the world, the fact that when Jesus came into the world, when God the Son came into the world, He humbled Himself. He didn't come as a king on a throne. He came as a child of poverty from from the the most humble beginnings, the very thing that shows how much God sacrificed out of His love for us, people use as an excuse not to believe. And in a subtle way, that's sort of how Jesus responds to them. If you think about it, Jesus could have said, here's my birth certificate, born in Bethlehem. Here, look at my ancestry, son of David. He could have answered them just like that, but He says, no, I'm going to go much higher than that. Look what He says, it's a bit cryptic, you've got to use your brains. So, look at verse 28. As he was teaching in the temple complex, Jesus cried out, you know me and you know where I am from. I think he's sort of saying, well, at least you think you know where I'm from. You you think I'm from Galilee. You think I'm the son of Joseph. You think I'm from Nazareth. But actually, there's more to be than you think. Look there. Yet I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Who's the him and the he that he's talking about there? Who is the one who sent him? It's God the Father. And so he's saying to them, instead of saying, well, actually, I can prove to you I was born in Bethlehem like the prophet said I would be, he says, I'm going to go much higher than that. And I'll tell you, for the last 30 years, I've been hanging around in Galilee, but for eternity, I have been in the heavens. For eternity, I've been with my Father, the God of the universe. And it's so offensive what he says, because they're Jews. They're the one people who do know God. And what does he say? You don't know him. He's saying, if you really knew God, you would recognize that I am from God. If you listen to me, you are listening to God. If you believe in me, you are believing God. Jesus is getting them ready to hear that wonderful truth. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you see, that claim of Jesus, that he is the one who is from God, and that therefore he is the one who knows the way to God, the only way to God, that always divides people. Because if Jesus is the only way to God, it says to every other person on earth, your way is wrong. If you think you're getting to God by being a nice person, you're not getting to God. If you think you're getting to God through some other prophet, you're not getting to God. See, every other way, Jesus says, is misguided because I am the one who comes from God and I'm the one who shows you God. When people are indifferent to Jesus, and people are just sort of ho-hum about Jesus, that actually shows they haven't listened to Him. 
they haven't hurt him. And that's certainly the case here, because what you see is there are only two really starkly different reactions to Jesus. So firstly, come with me, verse 30, firstly the Jewish leaders react by trying to arrest him then and there, but I love this, it's great, look at verse 30, then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him. Uh, We don't know how he eluded them, I like to think it was sort of through natural evasion, that Jesus was sort of like someone we want playing for New South Wales in the state of origin this week, you know, that he sidestepped and they dived and fell on the floor and then he sidestepped again and then he keeps preaching and then they come and he, I I like to think that, Uh, I think it's more likely he did something miraculous and he just disappeared and reappeared somewhere else, both options are open to Jesus if he wants to, Uh, but it doesn't matter, the point is why they couldn't catch him, did you see that there? I didn't read it out, says, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That is really, really important. Please understand this. Jesus knew he was going to die. And when he did die, it wasn't like he lost control for a while and they sneaked up on him and caught him and it was like, oh no. When Jesus died, it's because he gave himself to them. See, he knew he was going to die, but it would happen in his timing and it would happen in God's timing and Jesus still had more to do. See, this is just that reminder, God is in control. See, sometimes we can look at our world, and we can look at the the efforts of all sinful humanity, and we can think God must have lost control, but no, God is in control even over the sinful actions of these men, and God even uses their plans for His good purposes, for the salvation of the world. But that's the first reaction, they try to kill Him. But the common people, look at their response, much more positive, look at verse 31, it says, however, many from the crowd believed in Him. Now, we've seen in John's Gospel, we don't know if that's saving faith yet, we don't know if it's a faith that, that, that really understands, but at this point, they believe in Him and they said, when the Messiah comes, He won't perform more signs than this man has done, will He? I think that's such a great response. Uh, it's like they're saying, what more do these other guys want? You know, this guy has fed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves and a couple of fish. He's, he's made paralyzed people walk. He's made blind people see. What more will the Messiah do when he comes if this guy's not the Messiah? And it's just subtly making the point. These people trying to kill Jesus, it's not because he hasn't revealed himself well enough to them. I mean, they saw the miracles. Now, they reject him because they don't like what he's got to say. And we see this today as well, and we've seen it all through John's Gospel, people love gentle Jesus, the miracle worker, but the Jesus who says, I am the only way to God, the Jesus who says, you are a sinner, and you need my forgiveness, that Jesus divides people. People don't like that Jesus. But now let's go back to the story, because amidst all the chaos, while they're trying to arrest him, Jesus just keeps teaching. Look with me at verse 33. Then Jesus said, I'm only with you for a short time, then I'm going to the one who sent me. You'll look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Do you know, do you have those conversations sometimes with people where they say things to you and look at you waiting for an answer and you just, you have no idea what they've said? You've got no idea what they're talking about? And you're sort of nodding and smiling and then, oh, you want me to answer? I've got no, I, I, I don't know. That's what happened to them here. They have no idea what Jesus is talking about. They say, is he going on a trip? Is he going to go teach the Greeks? What's, what's going on? 
But we know the answer because we know the whole story. We know why Jesus is only going to be with them a short time because in a little while he will be killed. And then, yes, he will rise from the dead on the third day, but then very quickly he will ascend to be with his Father in heaven. And Jesus is saying, when that happens, and then you realise, oh, actually, we do want to hear what Jesus got to say, well, then it will be too late. It's a sort of warning. He's saying, now is the time to listen. Don't put it off. Don't wait till it's too late. And even though our situation is different, it's a warning to us as well. Because Jesus tells us that one day, any moment, he could return to judge the living and the dead. And so Jesus says to us, now is the time to listen, now is the time to believe in me and follow me because I could come back tomorrow and then it will be too late. But now he gets to the climax of this story. So uh, shake yourself off, these are the most important verses. Come with me to verses 37 to 39. Uh, but to really understand what Jesus is saying here, you need to know a little bit about Jewish festivals. Who here is an official on Jewish festivals? Anyone with a great knowledge? Anyway, all right. There were three really important festivals every year in Jewish life. Anyone know what the most important one was? Have a go. Passover was the most important one, where they remembered how God had saved them out of slavery in Egypt. The other one was Pentecost, and then the third one was this one, the Feast of the Tabernacles. And the whole point of the Feast of the Tabernacles is you would come to Jerusalem and you wouldn't stay in a house, you would stay in a tent or a booth, which is why it's the Feast of Tabernacles, which means tent, or booths, which means booths. So the point was they would live in a temporary dwelling for the week of, of the festival. And, and, and that was to remind them of how they were living when they were in the wilderness. And the point of this festival is to remember how God provided for them, especially how He provided food for them to eat and water for them to drink. So during this feast, every day, the priests would go on a procession through Jerusalem. They would fill big things of water at the Pool of Siloam, and then they would take them to the temple, and with everyone there, they would pour out the water all over the temple. And they would do that every day for the seven days. Now, what was it showing the people? It was showing, it's reminding them back in the past how God had provided water for them, like we read in Exodus before, how God provided water for them in the desert. But then it was also, sort of every year, it was a reminder, this year God will provide for us. So every year it was a reminder to them, not just how God has provided in the past, but He's providing now. He gives us food to eat, He gives us water to drink. But more than that, it also looked forward. And each time, as they had this, they would read the prophets, prophets like Isaiah, because water was symbolic and the water was always meant to remind the people of what they had to look forward to where the prophets told them there will come a day when God will provide for you for eternity, where there was a water was a metaphor for a salvation and an eternal life for God's people, a day when He would pour out His Spirit into the hearts of all His people. So they had passages like Isaiah 12 verse 3, have a look at that, it's on your outline, where it says, you will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. Or Isaiah 55, 1, come everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. You see, when he talks about joyfully drawing water from the springs of salvation, that's not the name of a well, he's talking about a day when you will receive the Spirit of God, when you receive the blessings of eternal life. So that's what they've been experiencing all this week, they've been seeing the water poured out as a reminder of God's provision, they've been reading the prophets, and then look at verse 37. 
It says, on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. You see, given what they've been seeing all week, what he was saying was obvious. He's saying, I am the one who is bringing God's blessings. I am the one the whole Old Testament was talking about. I am the one who can give you everything God has promised. I am the one who can give you eternal life. In the same way that God provided physical water to quench your thirst in the past, well, I can provide you the Spirit of God to quench your spiritual thirst. And that gives you eternal life. And now you won't have to work for it. You don't have to carry it in pots. It will just flow from within you. This is the wonderful promise that Jesus makes. His invitation to drink the living water is an invitation to come and trust in Him. If we come and trust in Jesus, He gives us eternal life. He puts His Spirit inside us. He gives us life not just for 70 or 80 years, with all its ups and downs, but for eternity with God. To know Jesus means we don't need to search around anymore, trying to find fulfilment and contentment and meaning in the transient things of this life. And my prayer for you today is that you have drunk that living water. It's actually nothing more important than that. My prayer is that you have recognised Jesus for who He is and trusted in Him. Every person needs to drink the living water. Sometimes people have been saying to me, they've been looking at John's Gospel, oh, it's complicated and Jesus speaks in sort of funny ways and all that sort of thing. But I think Jesus' message is so simple, really. He is the Messiah. He is the Saviour God has sent into the world. And if we would just believe in Him, then we have life. It is the most simple, yet the most profound and amazing and wonderful message. And what do we have to do? Just drink. Just believe in Him. And I pray that you have. But as we close, there's one last little part of the story from verse 45 to verse 52. And it just reminds us of this sad truth. If a person doesn't want to believe in Jesus, they will find reasons not to believe in Jesus. And we've seen that already in all those reactions to Jesus. And we, as we close, we come back to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. By this point, they're determined to kill Jesus. They try and arrest him. And I love this, their own police force, the own people they, they, they pay, won't do it. Because they say, he's a much better teacher than you guys. We're, we're not arresting him. Uh, and so they get angrier and angrier. And then one man, one of the Pharisees, stands up and challenges them. We've met Nicodemus before. Do you remember Nicodemus, back in John chapter 3? He's the guy who liked what Jesus had to say, but didn't have the courage to go in the open and say, I believe in him. So he went at night and asked him questions. Well, he screws up his courage here and he says, surely we have to listen to Jesus. Surely we have to listen to the evidence. But they're not interested in evidence. They don't want to hear. And they turn on Nicodemus and mock him. Verse 52, they say, you aren't from Galilee too, are you? Well, you're not the country bumpkin from, insert your place. They say, investigate and you'll see no prophet arises from Galilee. They're mocking Nicodemus. They're saying only a dumb country bumpkin like you would believe in a dumb country bumpkin like him. People do 
the same thing today, don't they? Whenever I read the newspaper, someone's having their Bible read for us. <laughs> we're, uh, we're back to the beginning of John chapter 7, I'm listening in. But people uh, do the same thing today, don't they? When I read the newspaper, I always find writers who, uh, who say, you know, only a person who switches their brain off could believe in an imaginary sky daddy, you know, and all this sort of thing. And they're just mocking. I want to say to you, don't be put off when people scoff because they scoffed at Jesus and they scoffed at the first disciples. But you know what's really funny? Uh, much like some of these modern day scoffers, in their scoffing, they really actually show their ignorance. You see, when they said, no prophets come from Galilee, if you read your Old Testament, several prophets come from Galilee. You see, Jonah, probably the most, one of the most famous prophets, Jonah comes from Galilee. Nahum, he's got his own little book in the Old Testament, go read it, he comes from Galilee. And even the greatest prophet of all, Elijah, most people think was probably from Galilee. See, in writing this, I think John wants us actually to laugh at them. That's his point. He wants us actually to laugh at them in their scoffing, but it's a sad laugh. It's a sad laugh. You see, because what we see is the issue is not that Jesus has not done enough to reveal himself to them. It's that they just don't want to believe. I sometimes meet people who uh, come with all their questions and as soon as I answer one, they just move on to the other. They don't listen to the answer. It's just like a game to them. They just want to pose all their problems and pose all their questions. And in the end, that's because they don't really want answers. They don't want to weigh up the evidence. For some people, it would not matter what evidence there was, Jesus could come and sit in the third row right here amongst us and they would come up with a reason not to believe. And the reason is because their problem is spiritual, not intellectual. Their problem is they don't want to believe that they are a sinner who needs His forgiveness. And if that's you today, can I encourage you, I can't make you believe, but can you at least weigh up the evidence? Read the Gospels for yourself weigh up the evidence. For these Pharisees were never going to believe, because as I said, their problem wasn't intellectual, it was spiritual. But for people like you, I pray, who will admit that we are sinners who need Jesus, be reminded today of what a wonderful thing He has given you. We have the living water flowing from within us. You have the living water, you have the Spirit of God in your heart, you have the wonderful gift of eternal life and you have that because Jesus gave it to you. So praise God for it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful promise of Jesus that anyone who comes to Him and drinks will find eternal life. And so Father, we pray and give you thanks for each one of us here who has come to know Jesus and have trusted in Him and so found that wonderful gift. And we pray for those known to us who do not yet believe and we pray that they might weigh up the evidence and they might come to join us in trusting in Christ and finding eternal life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.